It's that time again. It's flat out RC podcast time. The podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Still coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. Do you know that probably over half of this audience is actually based overseas? So a big shout out to people that are listening from overseas. I know that we talk a lot about um, what's happening in Australia and we have Australian aero modelers, but guess what? We floor fly model aeroplanes no matter where we are in the world. We're all the same kind of people and we've got the same stories to tell. So I hope you're enjoying it. Big episode. Uh, we've got a jet guy on. Russell Easterway is joining me. Uh, caught up with him at the recent Wang Jets event. Needed a jet guy to come on to mix it up a bit. So Russell's joining us. A lot been happening, so let's get into it. Before I tell you, about how I'm back flying model planes again. I've got to bring some the, the shout outs to the events that are coming up. We'll call it the shout outs to the events. Um, people send me through flyers and stuff, which I'm more than happy to get. Uh, we're going to have to Queensland this time. There is the RC Scale Queensland Scale Competition uh, that's happening at the Tingalpa Model Aero Club in Stanton Road, West Tingalpa. Uh, it's being held this coming weekend, 1st and 2nd of April. It's a two-day event. Classes, flying only, team scale, F4H and F4C. Static judging for F4C and F4H and team scale. Don't forget your documentation. Gee, that was a bit, bit of a yell on the documentation. MAAA members, welcome. Uh, so April 1st and 2nd, start time is 7.30 a.m. So it's going to be an early start. Getting before the day heats up at the Tingalpa Model Aero Club for the RC Scale Queensland Scale Competition. Looks pretty good, I must say. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. If you're not into scale flying, if you're not into aerobatics, because with aerobatics you've got your iMac events and you've got your uh, uh, pattern comps on, stuff like that. If you just want to do something that's scale flying, but still sort of a competitive slant, it'll help you improve your flying and have a bit of fun. Like-minded people, you'll enjoy the events, get involved with the scale movement. RC Scale Queensland Scale Comp this coming weekend. Also, this coming weekend is the. I'm just. I'm on my phone now, getting all the details. I'm, I'm juggling around, so bear with me. The my local club, where I was out there today, actually, P and Darks Club, Pakenham and Districts Radio Control Society. Um, they've got their upcoming event. Just opening the flight. It's this week. This coming weekend as, as well. First and second of. April 2023, it's called the Monty Tyrrell Scale Weekend. Monty Tyrrell was a big figure in the club that established the field that uh, we now fly on. So it's the Monty Tyrrell Scale Weekend. It's a two-day event. Uh, normally it was held over one day, uh, but it starts on the Saturday, the April 1st, and continuing through to Sunday, non-powered camping sites and hot showers are available at the field at no charge to participating entrance. The field is available to set up fly from Friday, March 31st, Models may be left at the field during the weekend with around 120 square metres of undercover storage available. Um, cost for competitors is $20 per entrant for prepaid or $25 on the day. Um, less $5 for Vic Scale P and Darks members. Yeah. Non-flying entrance fee is $10. So it's a bit of a fundraising exercise. Uh, all prepaid entrants receive one entry into the major model flight Prize draw of the brand new Hangar 9 Piper Pawnee Brave. It's a new Balsa kit, 20cc Pawnee. Looks good. 
Scale models of all classes and sizes are welcome. Of course, all models must have a valid heavy model or turbine permit, if applicable. Permits will be checked by the fly. Um, so there's a bunch of um, different prizes for Best Civilian Military Aircraft, Monte Tyrrell Award, Best Turbine Aircraft Award, Best Junior Pilot Award, Best Scale Built Aircraft. Gee, good prizes from um, Scale Aero Products, $500 worth of products from Scale Aero products, well done. Hostars is giving a best turbine award. Uh, Model flight is giving away the best the award for the best civilian military aircraft award. A best scale built aircraft is five thousand. Oh yeah, don't cover that one. Five by hundred dollar fuel voucher to be given away thanks to the MAAA. So um, a lot of support from different organisations there. So thank you to all of them. Flying on Saturday will take place from nine a.m. until twelve p.m. Then again from one p.m. following the lunch break. There will be some demonstration flights during lunch break. I haven't been asked to do a demo flight. I should. Uh, official flying will finish at 2 p.m. Sunday, followed by award presentations. Yeah, there you go. Going to be a big weekend at P and Darks this coming week for the weekend for the Monte Tyrrell scale fun fly-ish kind of event. Now, there's more because uh, I've got my friends down at Echuca. They ran their Come Try Day, and it went really, really well. Um which was good to see, and they might get some new members out of it. Here is it. Fred West sent me a message with the, the flyer. Chuka Moama Model Aero Club annual fun fly the 15th and 16th of April at the VMAA Flying Field, Watson Road, Kanyapala. It's near Echuca. Uh Good event, been there a number of times. Um, come and join us, enjoy our great facilities. It's sure to be a great fun weekend. Apparently it will be. Refreshments are available, breakfast, lunch, and roast dinner on the Saturday night. Entry fees $10 per pilot. Uh, so that's the Echuca Moama Model Aero Club. Uh, it's about oh, a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Melbourne. Uh, great place to go and fly. Good people down there. Uh, always have fun. So get on down to the Echuca Moama Model Aero Club, 15th to 16th of April. So that's the middle of April. And there's one more, which I've got to mention, or else you'll yell at me. Sergeant Tony Wilson. Uh Mid-May Masters coming up again at Bairnsdale. Bairnsdale run a lot of events. You hear me talk about the Bairnsdale Club a lot because they run a lot of events. The Bairnsdale Mid-May Master, Sunday, May the 21st. I'm hoping to be at this one. Gates open Friday the 19th. Public entry by Gold Coin, MAAA Pilots, $20. Model of the Meat Award. No restrictions on model numbers or types. So this is bring, bring anything. You got it, you bring it, you fly it. Event camping is $20. Toilets and hot showers are available. Barbecue and fire pit. Disabled amenities, catering on site, heavy model permits if required. Bensdale, Mid-May Muster. Good event. Put that one in your diaries. 21st of May, Bensdale, Mid-May Muster. Brought to you by the Bensdale and whatever districts model. These model flying club names, they're just so... Oh, Bad Mac is a short... It's like... Oh, anyway, don't get me started on names. I can never remember them all. So that's... Some of the events that are coming up, I think I've got through them all. Um, I've been doing a bit of flying. Uh, you, if you've been onto the YouTube channel, you would have seen that I went to a float flying event at the Bragg Club, the Bauble Radio Modelers Association of Gippsland Incorporated, I think, otherwise known as Bragg. Uh, had an absolute nut of ball flying off the water. I've never done it before. I've got an FMS Super Cub, put the floats on it, had a great, great time. Genuinely had a, it was just a different flying experience. Really, really social, flying off the water with other people. Uh, one of the peanut gallery members, Balint Banco, 
um, from my local club, and also he's a member of the Brad Club now. He had the same plane, so we decided to fly in formation most of the time. Had a ball doing that. Really, really enjoyed it. It's just a different vibe when you're flying over water with other people. So if you get a chance, go and have a look at the video and get a float plane and go flying. And down at the Brag Club, which is only about an hour and a half out of Melbourne, phenomenal fun. And the FMS Super Cub, unbelievable plane to fly. It's the 1.7 metre wingspan, I think, uh, Cub. It's the black and white one. It comes with the floats and flies beautifully off the water. It's nicely balanced on the water, no bad vices, um, can bring it in really, really slow. My batteries are stuffed. I'm looking for a battery sponsor. I need a lot of new batteries. My batteries are so ancient that they're all sort of losing their, their, their oomph. I actually went flying today. I made it a new plane. Well, it's, a, it's an old new plane. It's a plane that I've had sitting in a box for probably five or six years, waiting for a rainy day, and the rainy day came during COVID. And so I built it, and I made it today. It's a... 3D Hobby Shop 75-inch Extra LT, uh, and it's a beautiful plane. It's one of my, it's my favourite scheme ever on a plane. I've got a 108-inch version, 100cc version. I used to bring the 3D Hobby Shop planes into, the, into Australia and run 3D Hobby Shop Australia. So I had this plane that I kept for myself, and I thought I was going to make it electric, and I did. I put a 40cc dual-sky motor up the front of it. I was going for grunt. 12S setup. Call me crazy. But anyway, it was fine. It was phenomenal. I think it was like a one click of trim, up trim, and that's about it. One or two clicks. And no knife edge mixing needed, no rudder trim, no aileron trim. I flew it in dead calm condition, so it was a good indicator of how the thing was flying. And ah, oh, But my batteries are stuffed. Need a battery sponsor. I might hit up my friends at Jewel Sky. Does anybody want to donate some batteries to the flat out RC cores? I need some 6S packs around the 3,000 to 4,000 milliamp hour, and I need 4S packs around anywhere from 2,200 to 3,000 probably from a foamy. But, um, but yeah, it was it was just good to get out there. And I found it's the first bigger electric that I've built, and I found that I did a lot of flights. I did eight flights all up, six on the on the 30cc electric and then two on the foamy. Um, just in between and I found that all I needed was two sets of packs and I could just charge in between uh, it was the downtime was very minimal a lot of time you have a bit of a rest and check your batteries and all that kind of stuff it was pretty good so um, so yeah it was good to be back so two weekends of flying and next weekend I'm going to the Monte Tyrrell event as well might get some flying in there as well might take this extra because all my other planes are, I don't have at home yet in a few more weeks I will so a lot happening um yeah, really good. To, lots of events happening down here. I know for those of you listening in the US, oh, you've had a lot of snow uh, in a lot of parts, uh, but the event season will be upon you and then we'll get into winter season here and we won't have as many. But uh, there's an IMAC, as I, as I record, this is an IMAC event on at Wangaratta. Uh, there's uh, another event at Ballarat. Got some some of the members of the Peanut Gallery uh, are down at Ballarat enjoying, enjoying it there. Good flying conditions. So, very resi, very positive. I'm very excited about getting back into flying a bit. I'm just going to keep on going, I think. Now, it's my favourite time of the podcast where you, where you don't have to just listen to me talk. Uh, it's guest time. And this week's guest is, is a gentleman that I've had, tried to have out on the past, but uh, couldn't just get times uh, lined up. But uh, Russell Easterway is our special guest. Russell is a jet guy from down here in Australia, and he is very has been very involved in the whole jet flying scene and 
at sort of association level and organizing events and things like that. So I saw him at the Wang Jets event, which was another cracker of an event. Again, jump onto YouTube, see the Flat Out RC YouTube channel, and you'll see the uh, the video that I shot there uh, the, um, you know, three or four weeks ago now. Uh, but um, it was a really, really good event. And I always like to have jet people on now and again. And Russell was available, and so we have him on. Uh, so he's going to tell us about where he got started and all the way through. But um, I didn't know he was involved uh, with the jet scene from very, very early on. So if you don't know how the jet scene kicked off in Australia, take a listen. You'll find out a lot more. Over to my chat with Russell Easterway. We're back talking jets this week, and uh, we have a jet guru joining us in Russell Easterway. Russell, thanks for joining me. No problem at all, Andrew. Now, Russell, I've met you at the Wang Jets event a number of times, and you're very active in the in the whole turbine model jet scene. And we're going to really get into that, um, you know, in this podcast. But where did your journey in aero modelling begin? Um, oh, look, probably about the age of eight years of age, I started sort of making chuck gliders and all sorts of other balsa things, and uh, throwing those around. And I started flying control line aeroplanes when I was about eleven and um, was taught to fly by a guy called Dennis Cole, who I'm still good friends with like 56 years later. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then from there, uh, went on to start radio control flying when I was 15 years of age and uh, with a, a three-channel trainer and that sort of thing and um, then just advanced through. But let's put in context, what's the era that we're talking about? When did you first start? Are you talking about the 60s? Uh, let me see. When would that be? 1960... Five would have been when I started building chuck gliders. I started flying control line around about 1968, 69. Yeah. So it was a few years under the bridge. Okay. And then, so that era, that 65 to early 70s, that's when the really the radio control thing started to come in, didn't it? Uh, yeah. When I started flying radio control, um, I bought my first set of radio at the age of 16, I think it was, 15, 16. Um, was set of Fataba six-channel gear. It cost me about $320 at the time. Took mm. me a long time to save for it. <laughs> and a lot of guys in those days were flying um, what they call reed radios, which were a pulse-type radio where um, the really good guys, I remember guys with these massive big boxes with all these switches on them, and the fly aerobatics, it was like switching to one direction, gave you a deflection to one side and then neutral and the deflection to the other. So I had to remember what they did last and all these things. and um, yeah, it was probably a bit of a challenge in those days. I'll tell you what, when I, when I hear about those days, I just think, how did they do it? Because oh, I'd be crashing planes nonstop. Yeah, there was a lot of that in those days. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, when I started into radio, I actually went proportional straight up, which was good. So, But, of course, in those days, we had no reversing switches. There were no rate switches. Um, so it was just a bare box, basically. Um, you'd set the aircraft up with all of your control horns and your, your control runs in the right direction so you had the correct throw on the, the surface. And um, and then you just adjusted everything to the way you would normally fly an aircraft and your thumbs do all the work. <laughs> so, and did you join a club? You know, did you go and learn at a club or what was that learning? Uh, when, I, when I first started flying radio, I, was, um, I flew up at the north of Melbourne on a road called Cooper Street in Epping. Uh, there was no club formally, but there was a lot of guys got up there and flew on a Sunday afternoon. And the basis of that um, club ended up becoming the Northern Flying Group. Ah, oh, yeah. Um, eventually, after quite a few years. Um, 
and they they started the Northern Flying Group started a little bit further down uh, Cooper Street towards Epping, and um, I remember they ran a um, a radio modeler um, event there many 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 years ago, probably in the seventies, which was a um, historic sort of aircraft thing. And they had I remember there was three quarter scale Spitfires at that stage, which two crashed. Hmm. Um, and they were sort of like they were a monster aircraft in those days, and yet nowadays those aircraft are just a fairly common sight, you know. Yeah. So, mm, yeah, very, very different. That first trainer that you had? Yep. You had to build it or did you buy it off somebody else? Uh, no, I built that. Um, you know, I think I've just about built everything I have except my very last jet, which was an ARF. Um, so I, my first ever radio aircraft was called a uh, Headmaster. It was built by Top Flight or kitted by Top Flight. Um, required you to build it, cover it, paint it, all that sort of thing. Had an Enya 29 in it, which I, um, being a bit strapped for cash, I had an Enya 29 in one of my big five-foot control line aeroplanes and I pulled that out and I put a radio uh, throttle on it and converted it for radio and that went in the front of the aeroplane and and saw me through for quite some time. Yeah. Did you have any friends joining you or was it a solo mission? Uh, no, I had a very good mate of mine that uh, we both flew control line together for years um, from high school, and then we both got into radio at the same time. His father used to actually take us on a Sunday um, up to this uh, area, and we both flew at the same time. And um, at the age of 16, we both took up full-size flying, and I kept it up for about three hours and couldn't afford any more. Um, and he went on with his parents funding him, and um, I think he's about to retire. He's a senior trek and training captain with Virgin Airlines, has been for quite a few years. Oh. So um, similar things. He went into the airlines. I went into air traffic control. So um, yeah, it's amazing how many how many people get into that aviation industry as a result of sort of that passion for flight that they get went through model planes. Do you think that definitely planted the seed that you wanted to be involved in aviation? Uh, yeah, the seed for me was when I was six years of age. Um, I was taken out to Essendon Airport. Um, my father knew a person who was an airline pilot in Ansett, I think it was in those days, and I was allowed to sit on a Viscount aircraft, which is a four-engine turboprop thing, and uh, I was allowed to sit up in the front left seat and I was allowed to touch the control yoke, and it was a bit like an epiphany, I think. As soon as I touched that control yoke, um, aviation was it for me forever and a day. So... I've always had a very, very strong interest in it from that particular day onwards, you know, and uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's really fascinating how something like that can spark something in a person, and and it's a recurring thing that I that I hear when I when, you know I'm having interviewed so many people that you know even I was thinking back to to you know 1979 or 1980 when I said to my mum I wanted to be a pilot and I got a letter from Qantas. She she wrote to Qantas and said, you know, what do you need to do to become a pilot? And they sent this yep. typewritten letter out back to me and I've still got that letter somewhere. And it's like, but I can't actually work out what that spark came from. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, of course, so many years down the track, you're still, still involved in some way, shape or form. Okay, so so you get this trainer and and – Always interested in that next step. After the trainer, what was the experience? What happened? After the trainer, I actually imported an aeroplane or a kit from America, uh, which wasn't available here, and I, I just fancied this thing. It was a patent aeroplane, and um, I started patent flying uh, in those days, and I went through Blue Angels and um, a couple of other things, Karari and all that sort of stuff. So they were fairly fast and old-fashioned pattern, um, mm-hmm. which is a bit different to what they fly nowadays. 
Um, so I was really into very, very precise flying and, and accuracy and all that sort of thing. Um, and flew pattern, did a couple of competitions and sort of did fairly average, but, you know, it was always a bit of a challenge. And um, I then became, later on, um, I got transferred with my work over to South Australia in the early 80s for a couple of years and uh, went to the outback there. And I sort of, I'd, I drifted away from aeromodelling for a little bit when I first got married uh, with young kids, all that sort of thing. Um, and I got back into it up in the outback there and um, and got into sort of like a sport pylon type thing with um, a thing called a little stick, which is, a, you know, an ugly stick, that sort of sort of thing. Um, but we used to build a little stick, which was originally built for a 19-size engine and put a 45 in them, and they'd sort of go pretty quick and um, a bit more exciting. So I did that, and plus I built another pattern aeroplane up there. I just flew for hell of it and, and got involved in the club up there and um, taught a few people to fly and all that sort of thing. Uh, then back to Melbourne, and I got involved with the Greensboro Model Aircraft Club uh, for quite a few years. I was on committee for about six years. And um, that's where I sort of – I was basically into sport aeroplanes, but then I sort of uh, got into ducted fans with a few of the guys around about 1996, I guess, um, and uh, started flying ducted fans with uh, people like Peter Agnew, um, who was the president of VJAA when we first started it. Um, and um, David Lauder, who is still a member of the VJAA, uh, and quite a few other guys that were into that that sort of vein. And um, on we went from there sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, ducted fan. I remember in the 80s reading Airborne magazine and reading about these ducted fans, and, and I've heard mixed stories about what the experience was, was like flying ducted yep. fan, and it didn't sound like it was great. It sounded like it was pretty challenging. Uh, from your perspective, what was it like flying ducted fan? Yeah, look, I sort of came into ducted fans after they'd matured a little bit, and um, but there was quite a few guys that had been there right at the beginning. Um, so early ducted fans, Byron was very popular in America, and there was quite a few of the aircraft out here. But the Byron fan system was a very unusual sort of thing. It had a um, they were sort of like a, a pusher fan rather than a, a, a tractor fan. Um, and a bit of a weird setup, and they didn't produce a massive amount of thrust. So initially, those aircraft were sort of very sluggish getting in the air. Once they got on song, they were okay, but very difficult to get off the ground, and so it was a bit of hit and miss. And that was the early days of uh, ducted fans where, you know, each time you went out, it was um, not necessarily a successful day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I guess the early days of turbines were a little bit the same. But um, by the time I came in, um, OS-91 uh, VRDF sort of motors were pretty reliable and um, with a Ramtec fan on the front, they produced, um, just trying to think what it was now, probably around about um, five and a half kilos of thrust at, at absolute maximum performance, which you didn't always get. And um, But having said that, I flew out of Greensboro. We had a strip there. It was 140 metres long with a fence either end and you'd get a ducted fan in and out of there fairly reliably. Um, so my first ducted fan was a, a, a trim F-20 Tiger Shark, which flew pretty well. Um, and I flew that for quite some time until it had an unfortunate death up at Leeton at one of the jet events up there. Um, and then I went and uh, and built a thing called a Renegade. And uh, the Renegade was an Australian-designed ducted fan by a fellow over in Western Australia. And he was a pattern flyer who ducted fan, uh, flew ducted fan, and the aircraft flew like a pattern model. Um, so I really love flying that particular aeroplane. I've still got that aircraft. I built it 25 years ago, and I've still got it sitting in a shed. 
Um, haven't flown it for quite some time, but uh, it sits there and I look at it and think I should put a turbine in that. <laughs> yeah. How big were these models, these ducted fan models? Uh, depended. The ducted fan models are a bit smaller than a lot of the turbine stuff we see now, um, but probably in the same sort of size as the 80 size or slightly smaller, the 45 type size stuff that we're seeing in turbines now. Um, so a, a Tiger Shark was around about um, probably 1.2 to 1.3 metre wingspan and around about 1.6, 1.8 metres long. Um, and then there was a thing called the Spectre, which is a very fast and agile um, Australian-built sort of aircraft. Um, and they were a little bit smaller but went very, very quick. Um, the Renegade I have is probably 1.4 metre wingspan and probably about 1.5 metres in length. Um, the thing with ducted fans in the old days, of course, they were never, nowhere near as quick as a turbine in respect of straight and level flight when you open the throttle. Um, but the big challenge in the old days was to crack 200 miles per hour and um, was more difficult than you would think. <laughs> mm. um, I managed to do it with one flight with my Renegade where I came out at 200.1 mile an hour and just managed to get through. Uh, in the old days, they'd give you a little sticker, which I used to have in my old trailer, and it was a sort of source of pride to say I did 200 mile an hour with an aeroplane. <laughs> um, whereas nowadays, you just open the taps and fly straight level. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But were they, how aerobatic were they? Like, what was the performance like once they were flying around? Uh, very good, yeah. Um, in the old days of the jet events, um, they used to run what they call a Top Gun competition at nearly every jet event, which was an aerobatic uh, competition. And um, you would fly. Um, sort of basic aerobatics, I suppose, loops and cubinates and rolls and, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you wouldn't get quite the same sort of stuff that you'd have in a pattern competition, but still reasonably aerobatic. And, um, yeah, probably about the same as a turbine-type jet that's built to do uh, aerobatic manoeuvres nowadays. Okay, now you mentioned the VJAA. Yep. It always sounds funny when I say VJAA. It's the Victorian Jet Sport something, isn't it? Can never uh, Victorian Jet Aerosport Association. That's the one. So yeah, uh, you were there when it started. Yeah, so um, the VJAA came out of a um, barbecue afternoon with um, myself and a couple of mates and um, myself, Peter Agnew, and a fellow called Norm Thompson, um, who's no longer associated. But um, around about early 2000, we were having a bit of a barbecue and um, – not long before that, maybe up till about 18 months before that time, so in the late 90s, there used to be a jet event out at Melton, and the Melton Club ran one out there. And um, it sort of died a bit of a natural death out there, and um, we were one of the few states that didn't have a jet event uh, that was an annual thing. So we were sitting down having a few beers and, and discussing it, and we ended up saying, well, why don't we start an association to purely run jet events and just cater to the, the jet fraternity as a special uh, group. And um, so that started the, the sort of process. Um, we got a hold of a whole heap of ducted fan pilots that we thought might be interested, and we had them um, come on board as initial members. So I think we had 15 to start with. And they all pledged a, um, a $200 debenture, effectively an interest-free loan to the organisation so we could get started. And we incorporated the VJAA around about June of 2000, I think it was, and ran our first jet event in November of 2000 at Mangalore Airport. Um, and we ran three events then at Mangalore Airport, 2000, 2001, 2002. And we went to Angrada in 2003. 
and we've been there ever since. Um, so, yeah, it was a different organisation in the early days, um, mostly ducted fans and there was just the um, the odd sort of turbine come in because turbines were fairly new and we had the gas-powered turbines in those days, which were a completely different unit to what we see nowadays. Um, and our initial um, reason for starting the VJAA, I suppose, was to promote jet modelling. And we had a vision of um, possibly making some money out of this and um, then buying some property somewhere and putting a fisherman strip down so we'd have a permanent home. And the reality of that was uh, the very first event we ever ran at Mangalore, um, we had these debentures, but we had to stump up a fair bit of money to run the event. So myself, Peter Agnew and Norm Thompson underwrote the event to the tune of $21,000. Okay. And um, we ended up losing $300 over the three-day weekend. So we had 5,000 people through the gate, which we charged an entry fee, um, all that sort of thing. So we actually made our money back through that. Um, and the reason it cost so much, we spent about $9,000 on television advertising and radio advertising and all those things, which we weren't sure how, how well that did for us. But, um, you know, so we ran the first two events, I think it was, as um, might have even been the first three as public events where we had public come in and um, with an attempt to make some money out of it. And... Um, we found that it was such an impost with the public that when we went to Wangaratta, we dropped that idea and it just became a, a club-focused sort of a thing, um, pilot-focused rather than public-focused, and that's the way it continues to run nowadays, um, you know, just to make it sort of easier on the uh, organisation and, and particularly nowadays, having public involved would just complicate things um, from the point of view of liabilities and all those sort of things, you know. Yeah, there's a lot more challenges in running a, a public display n nowadays, but um, mm. but yeah, it, but you know, it's interesting you talked about having to spend that money on advertising now. It's so much easier because you've got Facebook and it's so much cheaper. You know, Absolutely, you can spend yes. three hundred bucks and and get a crowd there now using Facebook. So yes, definitely, it definitely has become easier. Okay, so mm. when did you first get into turbines? Uh, well, I first got into turbines. Um, I've got my F8, uh, F15, uh, which was my first ever turbine jet, which is now 18 years old. So I got in 18 years ago into turbine stuff. Mm. And um, it was a bit of a thought process, I suppose. I mean, ducted fans in their day were relatively expensive. Um, you know, it's amazing how it's uh, cost-wise has changed quite a bit over the years and it's become relatively cheaper in comparison to what it used to be, if you know what I mean. Um, so ducted fans, you would build a ducted fan for between three and five and a half thousand dollars. Um, and then the step up to turbines was significantly more. I think my F-15 was about $16,000 to build back in those days. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, whereas nowadays you buy that same sort of an aircraft out of the box of an ARS and you probably kit it out and have it flying for maybe $10,000. Um, so it's relatively cheaper nowadays than what it used to be to get into, and it's less complex because you don't have to build the aeroplane from scratch and all that sort of thing. Um, so the original days of turbines, I guess, were um, JPX was the the very first of the turbines, if you like, with a which were a gas turbine um, which ran on propane, and um, completely different thing. Uh, Peter Agnew, uh, I think, had um, amongst our group of people had a a um, Rafale, so uh, Dassault Rafale with um, a uh, JPX turbine in it, and it was a four-person operation to start the aircraft. So 
you know, you'd have the pilot who would have control of the throttles and all that sort of thing. You'd have somebody who was opening up a gas tap to get it started up. Somebody who had an igniter box, which um, that was usually my job. You had a key to ignite to arm the igniter box, and then when the pilot said go, you push the button, and you'd hear clack, 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 boom, and off it'd go. <laughs> um, so it sounded like an old vampire starting up. And um, and then you'd have somebody with um, a scuba tank to inject air to actually spin the turbine up in the first place. So um, it was a bit of a, a team effort, you know, and always have someone with a fire extinguisher <laughs> ready to go. Like well, they'd have it in their hand, armed and ready to go because there's a chance of a fire was probably reasonably high. Um, so it was a bit different in those days and um, as opposed to now where you, you push a button or you push the trim up look at the, the lights chasing each other and when you see them running, you open the throttle and watch it all happen. So, um, yeah, somewhat different. Oh, it's a lot easier now. Like, um, you know, I didn't realise how easy it was until I got a jet and had to start it up and went, oh, that was no flicking of a prop. This is good. Yeah. <laughs> I like this. Yeah. Yeah, no nipping of the fingers and, and all that sort of thing. No, yeah. okay. So, um, so was your first turbine a gas turbine? Uh, yeah, my first turbine, I still got the first time on turbine, which is still in my, my F-15, which is a, P, a, a Jetcat P-120. And um, that was just a gas start. Um, once again, all fully automatic for me and uh, relatively painless, you know. So, um, yeah, so my introduction by the time I came into turbines, I bypassed all the, the really earlier stuff. Um, there was a big contingent of blokes in the early days who built their own turbines. And um, there's a couple of guys around the country that were uh, well known for all that sort of thing. A fella in Western Australia called Neil Jiggins. Um, and Neil used to build turbines that most of the time ran okay and were fairly reliable. Um, and then you had um, Stephen Green and his father uh, who would build their own turbines and set fire to everything in sight. Um, that, that was a very regular event was that they would have fires on startup. And, um, you know, every time they came out, you'd expect the extinguishers to get used. <laughs> uh, so, and there was a few guys that would regularly set fire to things with their turbines in the old days, um, which is fantastic now that you rarely see a hot start. Um, you know, I had one a couple of years ago of my Viper sort of thing, and, and that was my own fault. I'd left the valve open and um, I had a bit of weeping past it and didn't realise I had fuel sitting in the turbine. Oh. And um, so we had sort of a bit of a fire display at the tailpipe for a few seconds. Um, and I must admit, I didn't shut it down. And um, after about 15 seconds, I said to my mate, just dump the extinguisher in there now. <laughs> and, um, you know, we had a little bit of singeing around the back, but other than that, no problem. So, oh. But you really, you rarely see that nowadays, So, uh, which is a testament to the things that we're flying now. It's great. I'll tell you what, it is good times if you fly a turbine that's uh... – yeah, we don't see we don't see a lot of those issues anymore. But uh, but what's amazing is someone had to go through that trial and error process, and and there've been a lot of people that have come before me that have made my life easier without me lifting yeah. a finger. When you think about yeah. it, you know, way back into the sixties with radio control and all that kind of stuff, it's been sort of rapid progression. So um, yeah, massive. absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And, and now, like, well, where do you think where do you think you can go? What's what's the next thing that they could sort out? Do you think? Oh goodness, I, that's a good question, Andrew. I'm not really sure to tell you yeah, the truth. I, um, I don't know. I think it could be you know trying to. I think it's going to be in electronics more than anything else. You know, how do you? Yeah. Well, the things that have advanced um, to give you an idea. Um, yeah, you know, electric powered aircraft. 
So back um, probably, I want to be looking at, maybe 15 years ago, so not that long ago, um, there was a guy at uh, Greensboro called Trevor Duran, and he um, decided he was going to go electric, and he spent an absolute fortune buying this fan unit from over in Germany. I think it cost about $1,000. Put all these batteries in it, mounted it into an aircraft, didn't look anything like a jet. It was basically a straight-winged, fairly light thing. And um, and that was his first sojourn into battery-powered aircraft, and this thing just leaped into the air and hardly flew at all. Mm. Cost him a lot of money and um, and not a real great result. And then um, there was two guys that came out to the club one day um, to do a bit of a demonstration flight, uh, and um, a guy called Manny Ryderink and um, Bill Hamilton, who are well-known in the electric scene and have been for years, and they fronted out, we were flying ducted fans in those days, and they came out with an A4 Skyhawk, which was fairly small. Um, Bungie launched this thing, and it just went like a cut snake. And um, we were just sitting there absolutely gobsmacked. It was as fast as a ducted fan and all that sort of thing, and we're just looking at it going, that's electric? And he goes, yeah, but it cost five grand, uh-huh. you know, and it was like half the size of our ducted fan. And he said, we get two and a half minutes out of it before it sort of <laughs> needs to land. Um, and that was sort of the really the early days of the inception of electrics and then electrics and batteries and everything else have just come so far in that time frame. Um, you've got guys now flying EDF type stuff that's virtually almost as quick as a turbine and, you know, um, and a damn sight cheaper. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's true. You know, that's definitely true. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting. I did a, um, I just launched that. Uh, the, we've just come off the back of the Wang Jet event. For anyone listening, mm. it's the Australia's biggest sort of most iconic turbine jet event. And I did a video there and and played on the whole thing of oh gee, these things are expensive. Major clickbait title, uh, Russell. Major major clickbait. But I uh, yeah. But you know, it, some of these jets now compared to. So getting a hundred cc aerobatic plane together nowadays. If you're in Australia. We have a terrible exchange rate with the US dollar and everything. The whole yeah. industry works in US dollars. So everything's more expensive. But, you know, don't tell my wife, but I just bought another jet. And <laughs> it costs less than 100cc to build. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's not a big jet, it's a pretty small one, 80 size. But, um, yep. But so it's, it's, you know, everybody's listening is an avid aero modeler. We just don't have people walking off <laughs> yes. the street. They they know what we're talking about here. That yep. we commit money to the hobby because we love it, and we're going to have to. You're going to have to spend money. Uh, but mm. if people think that jets are out of the realm, well, guess what? If you're in the market for a, almost a 60 cc aeroplane yep. now, if you want to go and buy a brand new plane, put a nice motor in it, some good servos in it, your radio gear. You could probably get a jet as well. You're not going to get a massive F-16 or something like that. Yeah, but you're going to yeah. get a nice little sport jet or something. Um, and yeah. even now, what are your thoughts on the foamies that have come out? The foamy jets. Uh, look, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, when HSD first started making foam jets, everyone's looking at it, going, "Are you serious? This thing's just going to melt." Um, yeah. you know? But it's amazing that they've produced foam jets that look pretty good for a start. They fly okay. Um, and they're a relatively cheap entry into the sport. You know, it's um, like you can buy a HSD jet and set yourself up with a decent radio for probably four grand, four and a half grand, um, you know, which is not bad when you think about it. And, um, you know, and there's a lot of guys flying them with, with great success and enjoying them. Um, one of the guys that was there on the weekend, um, Dave Waring-Smith from over at Adelaide, uh, he flies an awful lot of foam jets and he loves them. 
you know. So, uh, yeah, it's different strokes for different folks, isn't it? Well, the, the, apparently the foam is a very different kind of foam. It's a very, very dense foam compared yes. to what we see yeah. in, in other models. Um, you know, a friend of mine's got one and did have a bit of a mishap with it, but he's managed to repair it pretty easily. Um, mm. But yeah, I've heard. I've heard. Re- it's, it's funny when they first came out, everybody's got oh, a foam jet. That's that's yeah, yeah like you <laughs> said, they're going to melt. And then we're a weird lot. Somebody who writes up a good review goes, "Gee, this this flies really well." Then all the other people feel see it and go, "Gee, that's not bad. Maybe I need to get one." Before you know it, everyone's contacting Ozstars and buying HSD jets yeah. and <laughs> little turbines yep. and all that kind of stuff. So you know, it can be done. And again, it's just I suppose another. Um, Another sort of pathway into jets as well, but um, yeah, but, definitely. But even yeah. then, I think I suppose what's also developed during your time in jets is the range of models that you can get. Oh, definitely, yeah. There was look, there's always been a reasonable range of stuff. Um, there was probably more scale jets than sport jets in the old days, and um, you know, it was a, a sort of. I would reckon if you went to a, a turbine event, most of the turbines would have been scale airplanes in the early days. And um, and then sport jets started to come into their own as well. So some of the ducted fan things got modified a bit to be turbine based and all that sort of thing. And um, and nowadays, of course, you've got such a wide range and you know everything you can possibly think of. And of course, the best part for most people is you don't actually have to build them too much. You know, you sort of take them out the box, looking really good, um, assemble the whole thing, put all the equipment in it, and go out and fly. Or in some cases, like BVM, you buy it, put your receiver and turbine in it, and chuck it in the air. Yeah, so, there's more and more of those actually. I've got one, one that's like that PNP, as they call it. It's got to drop the turbine yeah. in. But the problem that I've got, Russell, is even something as simple as putting a turbine in the radio gear that could be a one-year exercise for me in between everything oh, yeah. else that I'm doing. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty. Oh, you know what I think? I just don't. I enjoy building at this stage of my life. I'm just like, oh, I just want to go and fly. I don't have time for this, you know, sitting there and, and, and building the planes. Do you like building, actually? It sounds like you've been involved building most of your life. Uh, yeah, look, I well, I always cut, and bolt, cut bolter and glued stuff together from all sorts of ages, and I built a lot of aeroplanes off plans years and years ago. Um, we just start with a plan and bare sheets of bolster and cut and glue and all that sort of thing. Um, my F-15, when I built that, um, the kit came as basically fiberglass and foam cores and all those things, and you had to actually do the whole lot. Um, and I wanted, I scaled mine right up. Um, so if you come along to a jet event and have a look at my F-15, you'll see it's got scale vents and bits and pieces that the original never had. Um, because I've always believed if you build a scale airplane, you build it to look a lot better than you would normally think, I guess. Um, so I built my, the cockpit in mine's completely scratch built. And um, nowadays you can buy a 3D printed cockpit that's all made from overseas, painted up, looks great and all the rest of it. But back in those days, there wasn't anything like that available. And um, so I wanted a scale cockpit and I built this thing. I think it took me about 300 hours of work. (laughs) So, um, and you get very inventive. You use all sorts of common things for different things that look right when you paint them up the right way and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, you get. I used to steal the wife's hairbrush and cut the little knobby bits off the end for toggle switches and all that sort of thing. You know, and glue them in and paint them, and they just look right like a toggle switch. So, yeah, that's um, you know, and uh, lots of little things that you'd you'd make HUD displays and all these things. And um, and David Law would know exactly what I'm talking about because he scratch built all this stuff in the past for years at expert level. And um, and yeah, it used to be um, just as much about building in the old days as flying. 
Whereas nowadays, um, there's not that many people who build from scratch um, or from kits even. They just tend to go and buy ARS a lot. Um, there's still a few guys out there. Richard Wiggins, um, who you would know, I'm sure, um, has he's just astounded me in some ways. I mean, he's building this massive big scale um, sabre at the moment, which he built from a short kit. And the work he's put into that is just phenomenal. And, um, you know, it's amazing. You sort of build up lots of expertise in different areas. And um, and it's interesting when you've you've been a modeler who's uh, got to be inventive. A good modeler keeps absolutely everything, never throws anything away. I've got drawers full of little bits and pieces yeah. that one day might get used for something. Um, and you look at something and go, I can turn that into this to make it look like that. And so you start to think outside the box a bit. And it's amazing how that transfers to other parts of your life with other things that you do and um, and how modelling transitions into um, learning about other stuff that you can apply it to, if you know what I mean. So, um, you know, uh, working on cars, for instance, and painting cars and repairing rust and all those sort of things is, is sort of like a bit of an offshoot of things I learned through era modelling all my life, you know. Well, I always say to my wife when she says, can you fix this? And I always say, of course I can. I'm an aero modeler. Yeah, absolutely. We, yeah, We'll work it yeah. out. You know, if it, yeah. if it involves glue, we'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So what does your hangar look like now? Like what models have you got now? Um, really, I've only got my two jets that I've been flying lately. I've got an extra 300, which I'm sort of in the process of getting up and running again. Um uh, and I'm planning on getting back to sort of just flying a proper aeroplane on weekends so I can go out and get my thumbs back in action um, because I haven't actually done a lot of turbine flying in the last year or so. So um, it would be just nice to be able to just go to the local club and, and keep my hand in a bit more. Um, it seems that life gets in the way of sometimes aero modelling. I mean, I've been retired for three years now, but I've got a classic car that I muck around with and work mm -hmm. on. And we've got a large property down here on the Mornington Peninsula. So lots of things that keep me away from uh, getting into aero modelling and, and jets and all that sort of thing, you know. So, um, but yeah, the passion sort of is always there. It might get subdued and it might get parked for a little while, but it always surfaces and comes back again, you know. So, well, I went to I'm a bit like you. The past year's been sort of up and down with the flying side, but uh, after visiting the Wang Jets event, uh, I got a bit of a pep in my step and. Uh, Got a few outings already planned. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. you were saying it earlier how you, uh, we Aero Models have got always lots of bits and bobs hanging around. On my schedule this Saturday is to get into my garage and to go through and, and just throw some stuff out. Just all that <laughs> stuff that's been sitting there because it's just taking up too much room and I've got yeah. to free up some space to put – look. Russell, I'm going to free up space so that I can fill it with something else. That's that's what Absolutely. we do. We don't free up space for the sake of freeing up space. It's we need to get rid of something so that we can put something else in its place. So it's just, it's, we're maintaining the equilibrium in, in the in the garage, which is basically mess. So uh, yeah. I'll, I'll clear yeah. a mess and then create a mess. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's my, my workbench is like that. I clean it up every now and again and within a week it's back to being the way it was and, you know, away oh, you go. I'm hopeless but, uh, like that. I, you know, uh, as a friend of mine who – is spotless. His shed is spotless. And that's because yeah. he's the kind of guy, like he's, he has to drill a propeller. It's like it will take him half an hour because he has to clean it up after every hole that he's drilled, right? Yeah, yeah. And he sees yeah. my desk and goes, how can you work here? And I've gone, because I'm actually working and I'm focusing on what I need to do and everything else is just small fry stuff for me, right? So when I yeah. build, it becomes 
oh, like every tool is everywhere. There's yeah. just a mess. Whereas <laughs> he has, he will use the tool and he'll put it back into its place, this designated place. So I've actually taken models to his place to work on because it's quite a nice mm. environment because he's got yeah. everything organized and you feel good. But I'll tell you what, he's just anal as all get out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose my problem is I've got a hundred square meter shed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's another problem. And yeah, and so the whole thing is you can make a mess in one corner and just move somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I always say when you've got more space, you fill it with more stuff. Yeah. So yeah, and I've, I've got two. I've got six meters of fixed workbench, and then I've got a, a roll around workbench. Oh, so fair. you can just clean the roll around workbench off and do stuff on that, and then move stuff later on when you want to do something else. Yeah. Are you, you a know? member of the club down down your way? Um, I'm not at the moment. Um, the only club I'm actually still a member of, the only association is the Victorian General Sport Association. Of course, I've been in that since day one and, and still am. And um, But there's a, a club down near Rosebud, which um, uh, yeah, which Greg and uh, Marco Fort and yeah. Dominic and a couple of other guys, Mark Stewart, Stewart. are all members. He's, I think Mark's the secretary down there or the vice president or something. Um and I'm looking into sort of probably joining down there so I can go down there and fly with a few blokes I know and that sort of thing, and it's half an hour from home, so it's um, it's not too bad, you know. It's, I always say, you know, um, these guys from the uh, Nepean Club, they're all, they're all a good bunch of people, <laughs> like all mm. of them. It's like they're a friendly bunch too, so... Uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind joining the panel. It'd be a good yeah, club. Yeah, I think most, most of the clubs are pretty good. There's a few that have been, I mean, GMAC years ago, we had 217 members there or something or other, and um, yeah. it'd, be, it'd get a bit clicky. Um, I remember when we used to fly ducted fans there, we would all pit down one end of the pit and everyone thought yeah, we were elitist we, because yes. we wouldn't pit near there. And what we were trying to do was keep the noise away from them. And ducted fans in the early days used to scare a lot of average modelers, like the, the sport modelers. Um, as soon as you'd fire one up and roll out, they'd all land and run for cover, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, which has obviously changed. I mean, when the jet scene first started and we, we started the VJAA, um, there was fairly limited numbers of people flying ducted fans and then turbines. Um, but since turbines have, have come down in price a fair bit and become less scary, if you like, uh, there's a lot of guys at the average club that are flying a HSD or, you know, um, sort of a Vantes and those sort of things. And um, it's a, it's amazing how many guys come out of the woodwork that you never had any idea around, but they've been at their local club flying a jet, and then they decide to come and see what the VJAA is all about. Yeah. And um, when they do, they're usually pretty surprised because of the amenities that we use and and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, so it's it's I guess the VJAA is it's something we've always done. It's flown on full size aerodromes, and um, you know, sourcing places to fly in the early days was always a bit of a challenge. Now, how it's actually, this one of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, I was I was thinking about this when I was at Wang Jets and and how hard the committee were working, not just before the event but also at the event to make sure that it ran okay. Because there's when you go and run an event at a full size airport, there's some extra things that, or a fair few extra things that yep. you need to do. Yeah. How hard is it to put on an event at a full size airport? Uh, look, it's not as difficult nowadays because there's more people doing it. Um, when we first started the VJAA, we were sort of pioneers of flying on full-size aerodromes. Nobody else did that. And um, so we started that in Victoria, and then there was a lot of other states that started to follow suit. Um, and one of the things that probably made it a bit easier for us was because I was an air traffic controller, I understood how the system worked within 
um, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority and all those sort of things. And I actually personally knew inspectors in there that I could talk to. Um, so when we uh, first decided we needed to fly full-size aerodromes for safety and all that sort of thing, um, we approached them and sort of said, so what do we need to do? And in those days, you had to apply for a permit every single time you wanted to fly. Nowadays, you get an annual permit. Basically, VJAA gets given a 12-month permit to fly at Mangalore and Wangaratta um, without specific dates mentioned. And we just have to tell CASA every time we're going to fly. And then they issue no TAMs for the area and no TAMs are noticed to airmen so that the pilots that are flying around can understand what's going on. Um, and then the airport puts out a no TAM closing the airport, that sort of thing. So the aerodrome reporting officer uh, take care of that. So in the old days, um, every single time we wanted to go flying, we'd have to approach CASA. So we'd actually approach them a month out. And then if you had to change a date, you just couldn't do it. Um, so we used to actually arrange with uh, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority years ago to have two dates on the, the authority, one which we were planning on, and then if for some reason that didn't come off uh, due to weather or whatever, we'd have another one a week later. And, um, and they allowed us to have this sort of fallback position, but that's all they'd let us do. Whereas now they issue an instrument which is valid for 12 months and you can actually utilise it any time within that time frame, and you just have to give them notice of a few days to put out the no tams and, uh, and that sort of thing. So it's become a little bit easier in that respect. Um, but then you've got all the, um, you know, the aerodrome owner, for instance, and the negotiations that you have to do with them. Uh, one of the reasons we left Mangalore um, originally, um, we Mangalore doesn't have a lot of infrastructure. So when we were running an event there, we'd have to, like to give you an idea, the first event we ran there, uh, we turned up on a Thursday morning at like 6am with four marquees and throughout the day we had portable toilets brought in and we put up a half a kilometre of fencing in the car park area and um, just all this sort of stuff. We had to have food brought in and barbecues and all sorts of things to get everyone fed and watered and, and the logistics of the whole thing were just um, phenomenal. So we set it all up on Thursday and I remember the first year we ran this, we, um, we all stayed at Seymour we got back into town about 11 o'clock at night and all the boys were telling us what a wonderful time they'd had at the pub and all this sort of thing and we're just knackered from the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then on the Sunday, everyone part, departed at 4.30 and then we were there until 11 o'clock at night pulling it all down. And, um, you know, and that's sort of the committee and, and a few other volunteers were just working your butt off to do it. And um, fortuitously or otherwise, there was a change of ownership at uh, Mangalore and new owner, um, decided he didn't want model jets there anymore, so we sort of got pushed out. And we started hunting around. We found um, quite a few private strips around. There's quite a few private bitumen strips up around central Victoria, but none of those guys were interested in accommodating us. And um, we finally went to the Wangaratta Council and spoke to them. Now, uh, they ran the World Patton. Scale Championships or something no, like that, that at Patton Wangaratta. 1991, I think it was. Yeah, um, many Patton, years back. Yeah. Um, and then as a result of that, though, the uh, Wangaratta was going to become the um, Australian home of sport aviation in the country. That was the plan. And it was going to include aeromodelling and full-size aviation and everything to do with anything that flew. And um, anyway, it didn't actually eventuate, but the um, aeromodellers were still allowed to use the aerodrome. And unfortunately, the pylon guys used to get out there and start flying at 6.30 in the morning. And um, as you come into Wangaratta Aerodrome, there's a house. Um, as you're driving in, it's on the right-hand side. 
And apparently they used to fly top pollen races down that end on the grass strip early in the morning. And of course they complained to the council and eventually the council just banned era modeling at the airport. So when we went there in um, 2003, uh, myself and Peter Agnew had to put a business plan together, attend council meetings and pitch our case. And they gave us probation, I think it was for the first three years. And, um, you know, we had to give them a business plan, tell them how much money we'd bring into town, how many people we'd have there, how we would actually um, sort of bring recognition to the township and all that sort of stuff. And um, anyway, after a couple of years, they sort of looked at it and went, well, you guys are doing pretty well. We like the way you operate. And we've been there for 20 odd years now. Um, so it's good to keep a relationship with the town and it's good to keep a relationship with the airport operators that are there now. Uh, there's been a bit of expansion and that sort of thing and keep them all on side so that we uh, can continue to utilise the, the facilities and the, the um, you know, place that Wangaratta is. And so it's a great place to go flying jets. There's no doubt about that. That is true. And and um, in the video that I shot, uh, president, current president of the VJA, Paul McCarthy, was talking mm. about how great it is to go uh, go to Wangaratta and sort of the home of the VJA in a kind of way, and and he mentioned you know the accommodation. It's it's, it's a short drive into town. There's yep. plenty of places to go and eat, and so I always say you know I actually bought a jet to go to such events. I, I yes. I've always said that I'm not interested in going to my local flying club to fly my jet. I bought a jet to go and fly at a full-size aerodrome mm-hmm. and go to events like the Wang Jets where it's not just about the flying, it's about having a drink and having a feed and having a laugh after the event as you know, in the evening. And so it's just a, yeah. a total social sort of kind of thing and it just happens mm. that it's a jet event. And you know, every time I go to Wang, I think this is where jets need to be flown. They need to be flown in a place like this at a full-size airport. It just works. Yeah, and, um, you know, like a, um, the advantage in flying in full-size airports is you've got lots of clear space. You've got a massive big runway that just about anybody can hit. And, uh, mm. you know, you don't have all the potential restrictions that you have on club fields where you might have trees and buildings and other bits and pieces that can potentially get in the way. And so if you do have an issue with a jet when you're at somewhere like Wangaratta or Mangalore, the chances of getting it back on the down- ground safely uh far and away much higher than what they would be at your local club normally and um you know and if you do have an outlanding there's lots and lots of clear space so you're not going to be running into cars or car parks or whatever it might be you know and um so that was one of the reasons we went that way many many years ago because you, you sort of look at high performance aircraft and things like that um and there is no better way than to you know, to, pour, to sort of annoy the local population and if you're flying near houses and, and all those sort of things. So uh, it was just the way that we decided to go and it's turned out to be, um, you know, a great facility and and the best way to actually do it. And then, as I say, a lot of the interstaters, uh, so New South Wales Jet Flyers now operate out of um, a couple of different country aerodromes that they use now. And um, I think the, the South Australians um, have always flown out of Monato, but they had a fantastic field with a bitumen runway on it. And um, and that was really uh, Adelaide Model Aerosport, which was out at Monaro, Rick Davies and Vin Pike, were really the pioneers of, of um, sort of jet events, if you like. Um, and they were sort of, uh, they were definitely the class leaders around the country for a lot of years. And it sort of unfortunately died off due to lack of... Um, people to run it i guess in the last few years and dave waring smith is starting to bring it back up again but um once again because it's a smaller field i think their runway is 200 meters long and 10 meters wide now 
uh, when we first started flying at events over there, they had 100 metres of bitumen, five metres wide, and if you didn't hit it, you were in trouble. <laughs> so, you know, we all flew a lot more accurately in those days, without a doubt. That's right. Nowadays, like you said, you go to someone like Wangaratta, and if you can't hit the runway, then you need to get your yeah. eyes checked. Uh, I've known a few guys over the years who still can't hit a 35-metre wide Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I was noticing the other day that um, a lot of people come in on the very far side of the – of the um, of the runway, and I'm thinking, hey, uh, oh, I call it the footpath. It's on the edge of the uh, yeah. the bitumen. It's like, are they on the footpath coming in? But it's hard to yeah. tell. But um, but yeah, that's you know, the other the other things that that I notice is, you know, the, the, the VJA's got a special trailer to you know with some firefighting equipment on it, and to carry yep. these big cone things that you put over the 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 taxiway lights or the the yep. Runway lights and things like that to protect the the lights and also I suppose to protect the models a little bit sometimes as well. And it's someone's got to put them out and someone's got to look after the trailer and all this kind of yep. stuff. So there's always where where does that trailer live? Uh, we actually leave the trailer on site up at Wangaratta nowadays. Oh, it's really? sort of locked in behind a, a sort of fence line up there, and um, we leave it all. We had that trailer built a few years back um, by Marco Fort, in fact, who's a member yep. of the club. Um, he built the trailer for us at a good price and all that sort of thing. And um, originally we had the trailer built. It had a hydraulic ramp on the back of it for picking up aeroplanes, but the hydraulics on it kept failing, so we ended up taking it off and, and minimising it. Um, but the idea of the trailer was that we could load it up with everything we need to run a jet event and we could take it to different places. So we used to take it to Mangalore and we used to take it to Wangaratta and it, it used to live on uh, Peter Agnew's on three acres, so it used to live at his place. And then it just got logistics-wise of towing it all over the place, so we ended up needing it more at Wangaratta than anywhere else, so that's where it tends to live. Um, yeah, the uh, there was actually a fellow that turned up at Wangaratta the other day called John Mocklin, and um, he was an absolute pioneer in inducted fans years and years ago. Um, lived in Doncaster, had a company called RJ Model Enterprises, and he produced a T33 and an F86 Sabre um, and a, a thing called a Sport Hawk. Um, I think he might have had another jet there as well, but he moulded them and produced those as kits and everything else. Um, and, um, yeah, John used to um, do all his fibreglass work. So those um, covers that we have for the runway lights, uh, John produced all those for the club 20-something um, years ago, and we're yeah, still, still, still using actually them. using them. Yeah. Um, they've been great. And they have saved because a, a runway light, um, we destroyed a couple up at Mangalore one time. They were about $300 each to replace. Mm. So um, the covers that go over them serve two purposes. Um, an aircraft will hit those and hopefully roll over the top of particularly some of the bigger ones and hopefully not suffer any damage, whereas if they hit the runway light, not only do they destroy the light, but you actually damage the aircraft as well. So they serve two purposes, and they've done a pretty good job over the many years that we've had them, you know. So, um, But as you say, the um, the work involved and the logistics behind getting set up and pulling down everything every day, um, when you're operating a full-size aerodrome, um, you have to close the runway. So there's, there's big crosses that put out on each end of the runway that have to go out before we fly plus across at the um, windsock area. And then all the um, covers for the runway lights have got to be put out and all those sort of things. Um, and so, yeah, it requires a crew to get down the runway and, and knock that all out as quick as they can. And, um, you know, it's a, a dedicated bunch of guys that will get out and volunteer to do it because it does take a while and it's a bit of a thankless task, you know. But um, I think most of the guys that are on committee and, and running the organisation and certainly uh, in the past this used to be the case, 
you run the event for the um, amenity of all the people who come along and fly at it and you actually get some satisfaction out of seeing the event run properly and um, everyone have a good time. And it's more about making that happen on a, a, a Wangaratta Jets event than it is about flying for yourself and all those sort of things, you know. Yeah, so, um, yeah. But as you say, the whole event being a social event is half the the sort of thing, more about social activity than, some, than flying in some cases. You know? oh, well, the, the memorable stories come from after hours. You know, it's no, like, definitely. You know, unless there's a major incident or something at the field, you know, there's just lots of people flying, and we've seen, we've all seen planes fly around. But it, yeah. when you get after hours, it doesn't matter what plane you were flying or how you fly, whether you're a good pilot or a bad pilot. When you get some food in front of you and have a few drinks, then yeah. that's where the major memories uh, come into it. Yeah. But, uh, I was yeah. Well, uh, last week up at Mang on the Friday night, um, I went out and had dinner at the Thai restaurant with three other guys. And two of those guys are guys that I've been flying just with for the last 27 years. And um, and one of the other guys is a very good mate of mine who's an air traffic controller who came down from Alice Springs. Yep. And he's only been involved for maybe 10 years. And we were reminiscing about jet events back in 1997 and 1998 and all these different things and uh, having a great laugh. And he was just gobsmacked, mm. <laughs> some of the stories that you tell. Um, it's a vastly different thing. In the old days... Um, we used to go to a place called Leeton up in New South Wales and fly up there, and um, that was a fairly large jet event. And people would crash an aeroplane on a Friday, and everyone would get together in that person's room that night, and we'd repair the aeroplane, and it'd be flying again the next day or by Sunday. And um, and it could be completely, you know, you'd look at it and go, I'm just going to put it in the bin, and we'd go, no, you're going to fix that. We'd all get together and have a beer or two and fix it. Yeah. And they'd come out and fly again the next day. It was that's the way it sort of worked in those days. Yeah, it's... It's it's funny it's funny like that it's it's you know I, I think I've said this before in another podcast that when you go to an event like a jet event where it's just jets mm. you're not seeing gliders you're not seeing prop planes scale planes aerobatic planes you're just seeing jets so the same category of of, of plane there's something special about that. And even uh, I know, I've said the same about gliding events. If you go to Gerildery at Easter and you go yep. to their event, be the same kind of thing. So it's not about the plane category. It's just that when you have that single category there, it changes the dynamic a bit of the event, and it makes I think the participants feel it feels more special. You know, to be, like that's like I said, the only reason why I bought a jet is to go to Wang Jets. Like yeah, and yep. people say, why do you buy a jet? Well, there's no point in going to Wang Jets if you don't have a jet. So I've been yeah. a jet, so yeah. I can just go to the event. Um, mm. But I, what I've noticed, though, as time has gone, I've got this saying that all roads lead to jets, because yeah. there's been you know last three years at least the mm. massive shift and 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 in people buying turbine jets. It's it's just been phenomenal how many people that have just there's a friend of mine who was a, a year ago was telling me how oh i can't stand jets and oh, people that fly jets and blah 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 and all this kind of stuff mm. it's got five jets now yeah 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 it's one of those things you get a bug for this that's for sure and um you know and as we discussed earlier on with the hsd and all that sort of stuff it's become a far more affordable thing for a lot of people as well um so you get, you know, I mean, you've got the guys in fly IMAC and all those sort of things and um, F3A and all that, and, you know, you've got to put a fair bit of money into that sort of thing if you want to be successful at it. Um, and then you get your average sport modeler that goes out and either buys a foamy for $200 or 
wants to fly IC, so they go out and spend maybe six, seven hundred dollars. And to them, that's a fair bit of money. So it's a fairly big step to turn around and go from that to saying, oh, I'm going to invest thousands of dollars into a model jet. Um, but it's become relatively cheaper over time. And I think there's a lot of guys that are going, well, you know what? It's a fair bit of money, but what the hell, I can I can do that. You know, I can scrape together the cash and I can do that. And, um, you know, I think we used to say to people many, many years ago, people would come in and they'd go, oh, gee, I'd really like to fly one of these you know, but I'm concerned about the cost and all the rest of it. And we used to always say to them, look, if you can't afford to lose it, don't do it. Because it's a bit like, it's not quite like going to the horse race, but as we know where they're modelling, every single time you launch that aeroplane into the air, it might not come back. And, um, you know, having said that, I've got a lot of aeroplanes that I've had for like decades. Um, but, you know, it's, um, so if it's somebody that is sort of sitting there going, oh, look, it's hard-earned, I've got to put into this and I really can't afford to lose it. Then we used to say to them, well, you're no, probably no. better off not giving it a crack. Um, but I think because they've become relatively cheaper now, they've become into the realms of people who might be on the cusp of, oh, can I, can't I? And so they take a jump. And, and yeah, there's a lot more our modellers that have been sport modellers that have gotten into jets because it's just, you know, um, the thing to do. We've got, and I suppose with more people buying jets, there's a, there's a healthy second-hand market. Uh, absolutely as well yeah. so you know you can go and pick up i saw one advertised the other day three thousand three hundred aussie dollars for mm. an hsd jet with a with an 80 you know linton 80 motor in the thing so you can yep you know that's literally if you want to buy a 60 cc aerobatic plane that's what's gonna that's what's gonna cost you it, yeah. it's gonna cost you more you know yep. um so yeah I, th- I think you're right but i 100 agree i, I I was involved in car racing, and my my attitude yep. towards that was, if I lose the car, will it affect my family's living standard in any way, shape, or form? And I did it on the basis that the answer was no, it wouldn't. And yes. and, and with these jets, it's the same thing. You're exactly right. You know, I lost a jet, as we famously know, because I made a, multiple videos about it but um yeah. but it was like okay i was able to go home and my family was none the wiser but i worked yeah. really hard for <laughs> that's that that's always good I, I worked really hard to be in that position that's why i don't go flying as much as i'd like to is because you know i have to make money so absolutely so yeah so yeah i 100 percent agree I, I one thing that really bugs me really get to my gut yeah. is these people that look at turbine flies and go, oh, they're just a bunch of rich people that just got plenty of money and they're just, you know. No, yeah. we're just average Joes, aren't we? We just we're, we're Yeah, just- a lot of people, yeah, absolutely. There's, I mean, there's a few and there have been some very wealthy people involved in jets over the years um, and there's still a few guys there that are very well off, but the, there are a lot of guys that are just average blokes. Um, it's their hobby and they, they say, well, I don't smoke. And I drink in moderation and all that sort of stuff. And I put my money into what I enjoy doing. And um, and that's what everyone in life does when you think about it. It's just varying degrees of, of what you do. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and it's an error model is one of those things that um, you can get into it at a very, very bottom end and, and maybe have a hand launch glider sort of thing that, you know, it doesn't cost a hell of a lot of money and you can have fun with that and all the rest of it. Or you can go... You know, um, Steve Wilcox's F-104 up there would have been, 
Oh, I it might have been the most expensive aeroplane. Yeah, yeah. It'd be, yeah. But he's running hard side by side with Mark Taddy with his SU-30. They're very, very close, um, yeah. Both of them are in the I, many tens of thousands. Oh, yeah. Well, I know that um, Tyson Dodd um, has got an F-104 that they paid $60,000 for. That's a scrum. They bought, they bought it off of a guy called Peter Goldsmith in the States. Yes, yes. Um, who's an Australian guy, lives in America, and he's a fantastic scale model. He's been on the podcast twice. Oh, there you go. We, Russell, we get all the big names here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and they bought Peter Goldsmith's 104 off of him and um, him and his father, and they paid him $60,000 for it. That was about four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so those aeroplanes are getting to be in the elite range, if it would be my way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, I, couldn't, you know, I couldn't do that. I couldn't I couldn't fly something that expensive knowing that no. if I blink and something might happen. But I... I'm glad that they've got them because I love seeing them. So oh, I, definitely. I'm, I'm one of yes. those kind of guys that I'm really happy for Steve Wilcox to have that model, and I really love. Absolutely. And I'm glad, I'm, and I'm happy to watch Steve fly it and not me fly because I think I'd just be too yeah. nervous in doing that. But yeah, he's a pretty cool cute. I've stood with him on the flight line, and a oh, man, the guy's just so relaxed. But um, oh, Wilco's pretty solid. Yeah, yeah, a good pilot too. Yeah, but I did. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't trust myself with something like that. But it's interesting, like. <laughs> People, after I, I had my first turbine flights, people said, oh, was that the best thing ever? And I'm like, it was good. But I wouldn't say that my personal experience of flying turbines, which is not extensive because I crash them pretty soon, but um, <laughs> but that's going to change. But I wouldn't say that it's 100% better than flying a little foamy down at the park. You know what I'm saying? No. That I get enjoyment yep. flying any of them. The thing, though, with the jets is this the VJA event. Yeah. That's yes. the thing that got me into turbines and that's what makes it special. Like, yeah. I actually say, like, if you want to have a good day flying, don't go to an event because you've got lots of people at an event and you're going to have multiple people in the air, so you're going to be flying circuits and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. But yep. you go for the social aspect and when you go to the VJA events at a full-size airport. God, I remember used to seeing in the magazines from overseas and in America they'd be at an airport and I'd be going, oh, my God, imagine if you could fly at a proper airport. And so yeah. uh, it's it, to me the turbine experience is just not about fl- – it's not just about flying flying the model. It's it's just everything else that comes with it with those events. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That could just be yeah, me. Absolutely. I know this – you know, it, people like um, – Paul McCarthy and and you know Will goes really into his jets and and yourself mm. you know you, you're very much into that's my category of planes and 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 you love them but um but then there's there's a lot of us in that community also that are just could go and fly glider the next next weekend and be happy doing that as well yeah well many years ago what we used to do is um the guys would come along with their jets but then we'd uh, go night flying with them and little t28 foamies and stuff like that and have combat and try and clean each other up and all sorts of things yeah um the early days of wangaratta if you're driving back into town up the greta road which so you come out of the airport turn right head up into town um sort of almost in town there was a on the left hand side there was a big park with some trees around it and they've built a big building on one side of it now but it used to be a big oval and we used to finish flying jets at five o'clock and then we'd all head for this over with F-27 strikers and we'd have like 10 of them in the air at once. And uh, and we'd all be there fast and furious for five or six minutes just trying to hit each other And <laughs> just, at the end of the day. And we had as much fun doing as that. <laughs> we, had with, 
with sort of F-27 strikers as we would flying jets all day. <laughs> See, you know, and we, we, we go to these events and they're well run, pilots briefing, they're always very safe affairs. There's a lot of mm. procedures and stuff like that that are in place to keep things safe. And then we go to a park and try to run yeah. into each other. <laughs> Yeah. Like, deep down, we're all young kids, aren't we? Let's see if we can crash into each other. Yeah, and I, I think um, you know, like that was a the attitude in those days was these things don't cost as much as a high quality servo, so who cares? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? That's, that's right. Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah, yeah. I did so, that. I said uh, that actually. Uh, there was a period of time there when I was involved in car racing. There was another gentleman by the name of Paul Marlin who's been on the podcast, and he was racing with me in, a, in you know, not in the same car, but in his car. Mm. And um, we would finish up at Phillip Island, and we'd uh, we'd go back to our hotel or motel rooms and grab our model helicopters and go to the local park and go and have a fly. We did that yeah, a number of yeah. times actually, because you, sometimes you'd finish be done by three o'clock, and we go, oh well, what do we do? Let bring the helis, we'll go and fly. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. Are good old days. So, so it's that whole whole thing, and um, with you know things like motor racing. I'm I've got a classic car, and I'm involved in a club, a club that we go out and do different runs and all that. And it's um, all those sort of organisations. It's as much about the social aspects and things that you do outside of what you're actually doing, mm. um, and sharing the experience with people who've got similar um, outlooks and aims and all that sort of thing. You know, and as you were saying earlier on, I think when you go to a specialised event. Um, you know, such as the jets or the gliders or um, aerobatics or whatever, everybody's attuned to the same thing. Yeah. And so um, whereas you go to some of the scale events, um, some of the scalies can be a little bit sort of, you know, I'm not going to tell you my secrets about how I do this because I want to win the trophy and I'm not going to actually divulge that to you and yada, yada, yada. Um, and so sometimes scale people can be a little bit clicky Whereas um, all the other groups seem to just sort of get in there and have fun, you know. And um, I think that's why I went the way of jets and not sort of something else, you know. I've, I've hung around, you know, I, I like flying aerobatics, but I don't have time. I don't have time to go and compete because it's a bit of a bit of a time investment kind of thing. And I've got too many other interests and hobbies and work and yeah. family and all that. But, yep. but there's a, the, the IMAX scene's really pumping here in Victoria. And it's sort of, and, all the people that I speak to that are relatively new to it say the same thing. It's not really about the flying. It's just they're a good bunch of people to hang around with on a weekend. And because yeah. what you find is some of them don't even practice in between events. They just turn up and go, you haven't flown since, uh, since last time. So for them it's not about, you know, they're turning up knowing that they're not going to win. Most of the people that turn up just know they're not going to win. They might no. finish top three and at the end of it they're actually not that fast. You know, and uh, uh, but what they will tell you is, oh yeah, on the Saturday night, so and so said this and had too much to drink, and oh, it became a debacle and all this. So there's memories that are made, like the social stuff, like we were talking earlier. But um, mm. but yeah, the, the scale guys are trying to trying to get you know boost their numbers. They now introduced a, a foam category, stuff like that, just to get people into it. The thing, the thing is about some of these some of these things. It's interesting how you got into pattern for a period of time. I always say that if you do a discipline like pattern flying or um, IMAC or even scale flying, I think you actually become a better pilot because you, you, you're you trying to fly to a standard kind of thing. Absolutely. And yeah. then when you go and fly yeah. a jet, you're actually a more competent flyer. Uh, yeah, look, I'd say, um, you know, I was, I was one of the instructors at GMAC many years ago and every time I had a student, I would force them to fly uh circuits in nice square patterns and things like that. and everything they did was like you're making that airplane do that not letting the model fly you mm. 
And um, it's interesting. I had a flight the other day, and I hadn't like when I flew at Wanger out of the other day with my F fifteen. I hadn't flown that airplane for fourteen months. I haven't flown anything for fourteen months. Um, and I actually, uh, I was flying with Dave Goods, and I, I said to him, I said, "Ah, oh, you see that?" I said, "I'm letting the airplane fly me." So now I've got to take control because <laughs> yeah. there was a bit of a crosswind blow, and I was just letting it sort of drift a little bit. And, um, you know, rather than coming right down the centre line, he says, oh, how about you put it right down the centre line? I go, yeah, okay. And then I forced it to fly right down the centre line without a problem. But, you know, it's um, – and I've always had that sort of discipline because it makes you a better flyer. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. I always say uh, if you see me standing out there, you know, flying and you see me shaking my head, it's because I'm after something that I was trying to do. And like, yeah. And I'm pretty hard on myself of what it should look like, you know. And I was thinking, oh, you do like you mucked up that roll. That was a mess. Okay, do it again. See if you can. Yep. You know, see if you can fix it, kind of thing. But um, yeah. Having an, I always say, having an expectation of what you want the plane to look like makes you a better pilot, rather than just going, oh, yeah, it's going to fly around. No, if it comes back in one piece, oh, it's all wonderful. It's all good. Yeah, I used to see a lot of guys at, um, you know, sport flyers at the PMAC, particularly where. They take off hot dog all over the place. Couldn't do a circuit if their life depended on it, um, you know. And they get it on the ground, and then the landing would be okay, but the approach would be pretty untidy and all that. And you just sort of look there and go, "Oh, yeah, they can sort of." They think they're great three D type flyers, but in fact, you know, they're not very disciplined. <laughs> and um, and then when things start to go wrong, it's um, often not a great outcome. But yeah, and that's just me, I suppose. There's a lot of other people who probably say that that's dinosaur type thinking, and you know, just go out and have fun, but. Um, I think you can do both. You know, you can be disciplined in your flying and you can have fun at the same time. And for a lot of people, as you were saying before, um, you know, flying in a disciplined manner and making the aeroplane do what you want it to and not letting it do what it wants to do sometimes is satisfying in itself because you know that you've you've done that, you know. It's cheaper as well if you're a good pilot. Well, you, yeah, you don't keep wrecking aeroplanes, <laughs> yeah. that's right. You know, and even like ripping undercarriage out of your planes and stuff like that, you know, it's like no. uh, that's time and money that needs to be spent to rectify situations that could have been prevented if you yeah, had to land better, you know, got into yeah. – I always say that I had a, I've got a great podcast episode with Michael Timms and uh, Michael Timms explaining how to land a model plane. And it's right. a phenomenal step-by-step of how to land a plane. Yep. And uh, you know, yep. starting from your, your downward leg and you know, positioning in the sky and the you know, the, the technique behind it and um, you know, and how to do it, how to replicate it time after time. You know, uh, there's there's a lot to be said for for for, for learning how to do those things well. But um, especially when it comes to flying turbines, because you just don't wanna, you don't want to preen your plane. No. No, it's always nice to bring it home. Someone said to me on uh, Monday, I had your weekend flying. Go, I said a great time. And um, and I said, oh, was it really good? And I said, well, I bought all my airplanes. I bought my both airplanes home with a scratch on them and no repairs to do. So that's yeah, a satisfactory good, weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, yeah. have you got a dream jet that you'd love to own? Oh goodness me! Um, Besides everything. Yeah, um, I probably wouldn't mind a, a BA like a Hawk One Hundred. Um, and I've got a, a bit of a reason for that. My my eldest son is a, a pilot in the Air Force, and um, he's currently a, a senior flying instructor over at Pierce. But he went down the road of fast jets when he went in 16 years ago, and he flew Hawks and then he flew Hornets, and then he went to C-17s, and then he went across to uh, Pierce as an instructor. Um, and I really liked it uh, with the Hawk. He 
um, I went over to Pierce one time with uh, another bloke and we went and flew the Hawk simulator and all that sort of thing. So it's just an aeroplane that sort of means a little bit to me and I sort of probably wouldn't mind one of those because they fly well as well. Uh, good stable platform and they look good and, you know. Um, but, yeah, so that would probably be um, one that I've sort of thought about buying one for years and setting it all up. Uh, just haven't gotten around to it, I must admit. But, uh, yeah, that would probably be in that sort of category, I think. Yeah. You know? that, that's, that mm. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you another question, and it's the final question, and it's that question that it relates to models as well. Yeah. But this time it's what is what has been your favourite model that you've owned? Uh, oh, okay. Um, well, I would think in the last 20-odd years or so, 24, 25 years, my favourite model would have been my Renegade, which was a ducted fan which flew like a patent chip. Um, I had hundreds and hundreds of flights on that. It's still sitting in my shed on one of the shelves down there. Um, looks a little bit untidy nowadays with cracked paint and things, but... Um, yeah, I flew that aeroplane um, all over the place in um, you know South Australia, New South Wales, Victoria, up in Queensland, uh, with hundreds of flights on it, and it was just an aeroplane with no vices. Um, the only thing that you have to do with that aircraft is on landing, it'll float a little bit, and you just have to hold the elevator till it settles on. But um, it was just a beautiful aeroplane to fly. It was always stable. It didn't matter what the wind was doing. didn't matter how hard that wind was blowing. It was still controllable. Um, and I must admit, I just loved it. And I, I keep looking at it thinking, oh, I could jam a 60 in there or a 70 and, um, and go flying the thing. And I keep getting talked out of it by my best mate. But <laughs> <laughs> you never know. It might happen. I, I've still been looking at it going, oh, I'd love to get that back in the air again. Yeah. Um, you know, and um, it was sort of aeroplane. You could knife edge it from horizon to horizon all day. And, you know, uh, it was just predictable. And I used to fly aerobatics with it all the time. And, um, you know, yeah, it was just a really, really nice thing to fly and no vices was great, you know. So that would probably be my favourite of all time, I suppose. Um, probably had a couple of pattern aeroplanes that I really enjoyed back in the old days. But, yeah, I think the Renegade sort of tops the, the whole lot, you know. And, uh, yeah. You need to get it back up in the air, even with the cracked paint and everything. That would be awesome to see. I, you know what? I'd love to see a ducted fan model. Bring it to Wang Jets next year and, you know, yeah, I reckon the, the engine's probably locked up from caster and stuff nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> I could clean oh, it all out. Someone on the weekend was actually saying to me um, that they had a ducted fan. And we have had a – we years ago we decided we thought we'd run a nostalgia day and we had a bunch of guys turn up with ducted fans and all the turbine guys are going, oh, listen to them. Oh, God, they sound terrible. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, they were a lot of fun, you know. It'd be good to just see one fly, you know, for people that I, – I don't oh, – I think maybe I've – I saw one person trying to get one off the ground once at a flying club, but um, yeah, there was one for sale. Actually, there was this Kyosho kit that was for sale on Facebook, and they've gone on like four hundred bucks and it had pull yeah, starter on it. F eighty six with a they got a forty five, yes. not a forty five, a twenty C. Yeah, two. it was tiny. And a pull start, and they were fairly unsuccessful. <laughs> that's what I thought, but I thought, you know what? Imagine if you just had that and just like. You know, it's brand new in the box. Yeah, I thought, yep. oh, yeah, it's a collector's brand new in the item, box. It? Yeah, it's a collector's item. You know, it's like yeah, pull start on yeah. it. Ugh. I just thought, imagine the runway. You'd, you'd need a five hundred meter long runway to get it off the ground. If it's on grass, it probably wouldn't even move. 
No, they were a bit of a slug. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I thought, oh, brand new in the box. Offer him a hundred bucks. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if it's still there. I should, if it's if it's there, I'll offer him a hundred bucks and go and take it off. His yeah, hand. I, so I've never seen that. Ad. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's still. I'm going to check. Uh, I'm going to check once. But sometimes something like that, just to have it. Um, I've got a couple of very old, old, old kits down in the in the shed that are probably from the fifties. Yeah. Um, that I just picked up random place and you just like pass them on to another aero modeler so they can enjoy a, a well, city on the shelf pictures we and like, trophies we aero modelers we like shelving stuff. and they're just interesting to look at they mean it. something to me my kids will throw them out when I die yeah. <laughs> well Russell it's been a pleasure yeah. I've been trying to get you on I think yeah. I've asked you in the past and you've been travelling a yeah, lot absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. so you've been everywhere So, but it was good to catch up with you at Wang Jets and good to get you onto the podcast finally yeah absolutely people have been sending me messages going we need some more jet people well here you go ladies and gentlemen Russell Easterway, you're a legend. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks very much, Andrew. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Thank you to Russell Easterway for joining me on the podcast. It was good to have a chat with him, find out more about his story. Again, another person that I've met, but didn't know his backstory, so now we all know. And a big shout out to all those people that come and, uh, come up to me when they see me at events and things and say that they listen to the podcast and enjoying it. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you're enjoying it. I was at the club today and the guy said, oh, you're that guy, Andrew, from the Flat Out RC podcast. I was just listening to you and I apologize to him. He has to listen to my voice. But anyway, uh, really appreciate you um, choosing to, to listen to this podcast because there's lots of podcasts you can listen to and it's free, which means I make no money out of it. So we need a battery sponsor. I need some batteries. Batteries are expensive in our bags. Anyway. I'll be back in a few weeks. Uh, I've already got that interview discussed. Let's just say we might be talking a little bit about float flying and a whole bunch of other things in the next episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Don't forget about all those local events that are happening around you, no matter where you are in the world. Get involved in your flying events. They're a great place to go. Talk to you soon. Eyes on the freeway, Bonnie and Clyde. A classic cliche, we're on the run. This is what we waited for.